this harvest is called the gleanings. And uh, this is this is kind of a hard one. I'd say the most controversial, we're dealing with a lot of controversies tonight, I guess. The most controversial or difficult resurrection to place is the Old Testament saints. Uh, so I, I've, I've presented in here my evidence for why I think it takes place after the tribulation and before the millennial kingdom. And essentially it's going to come down to their, their destiny, their promise is the resurrection uh, into the kingdom uh, because that's, uh, that's the promises that are involved in the Abrahamic and the Mosaic covenants, which were given to them as a promise. Whereas we are to take part in the marriage feast of the lamb that takes place prior to the millennial kingdom. Um, so we have a different, uh, we have a different cue in this stage play uh, that is the end times. So our act comes a little before the Old Testament saints act. That being said, the tribulation martyrs, they're pretty easy to place at the end of the tribulation, uh, being that they don't exist prior to it. Uh, so without further ado, let's look at Israel's promise of resurrection. So in Isaiah 26, 19, um, Isaiah says to uh, Israel, your dead will live, their corpses will rise. You who lie in the dust, awake and shout for joy. For you, for your dew is as the dew of the dawn, and the earth will give birth to the departed spirits. So early on, well, this isn't early in Israel's time. Uh, this is about 600 AD in the time of Isaiah, prior to the exile. Uh, this concept was well grounded uh, that uh, there would be a resurrection. And they've, they've always, even since Abraham, have had this understanding that God is capable and even will promise a resurrection. Uh, Abraham, when he went to sacrifice Isaac uh, on Mount Moriah, he, he was perfectly willing to do so because he knew that God had promised him a son and, and that if he sacrificed him, that God would raise him up again. Uh, so even from the founder foundational cornerstone of Israel there with Abraham, um, they've had this understanding of promised resurrection. Furthermore, Ezekiel, uh, who's, he's a contemporary of Daniel, so this would have been during the Babylonian exile, uh, prior to the second uh, wave of exile. So Daniel was taken in Nebuchadnezzar's first um, sack of Jerusalem. Ezekiel was taken in the second one. Um, so he's, he comes a little after Daniel in his prophecies. And he says, therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will open your graves and cause you to come up out of your graves, my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves and caused you to come up out of your graves, my people. I will put my spirit within you and you will come to life, and I will place you on your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and done it, declares the Lord. So we see here that their resurrection is in the context of coming into their land. Uh, now, this land has never been fully occupied by them. Uh, we see in the beginning of Deuteronomy exactly the dimensions of those lands. It's repeated earlier in uh, 
in Exodus, actually in Genesis, Exodus, I don't think in Leviticus, again in Numbers and in Deuteronomy, they're given the dimensions of their land. And it goes all the way to the Euphrates River, uh, all the way up through Syria, down to Egypt, over to the Sinai Peninsula. This is a large swath of land that they've been promised in an eternal covenant with Abraham, uh, one that God cannot break. And this is all going to take place in the millennial kingdom, where Christ will rule from Jerusalem on this earth uh, and be victorious over Satan, who usurped um, God's vicarious ruler, Adam, uh, back in Genesis 3. So their promise is to resurrection on this earth, whereas ours is to resurrection in the presence of Christ in heaven. Um, so we see that um, the anticipation of that resurrection comes with a different, um, a different um, proceeding promise after it uh, for the Jewish believers. Uh, but this is not a national resurrection on the basis of ethnicity. It's a resurrection on the basis of faith uh, for those who have become part of Israel through faith. Uh, later on in the epistles, we'll hear Paul say that not all, uh, not all who are uh, Israel are Israel. But what that's meaning is uh, just because you are a Jew does not mean that you are part of the saving faith. Uh, okay, so Naomi asks, this is before the thousand years Christ rules or when the new earth is created. This is during the thousand years. Christ will have a throne in Jerusalem for 1,000 years on this earth before uh, the new creation, which will be called the, we'll call the eternal state. Um, but that's going to be the new heavens and the new earth. Uh, and the Old Testament saints come back prior to that millennial kingdom to enter into the millennial kingdom. Uh, all right, so let's read here from Daniel 12, 1 through 2. This is right at the end of the, uh, the prophecies of Daniel, where he's basically signed off. So it says, Now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise. And there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at, the and at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. So we see that even within national Israel, there is a division between faithful and unfaithful or better said, believing and unbelieving. Uh, but also we see that this comes at the end of um, the tribulation, that after the time of distress, um, their resurrection will take place. Uh, I'd say some of the main confusion between the timing of the rapture is a confusion, confusion between the distinction of Israel and the church. Uh, we call this... Uh, replacement theology, that the church has become Israel, and thus all of Israel's promises are null and void, and they're transferred onto the church. Um, and this is not a legitimate view. Um, it does quite a bit of damage to the distinction between the church and Israel. Um, and it, it's interesting that whenever someone does this, um, this uh, 
replacement of the church with Israel. They always take Israel's blessings and leave the cursings. Um, so be mindful of that. Um, if you see that taking place, it's usually so that they can attain one of uh, Israel's blessings. Uh, all right, so then the tribulation martyrs, uh, Revelation 24, and again, this was the verse that uh, I did not have a good answer for before, so I, I took two weeks and I studied it out so I could have a good answer. Um, so this verse is speaking of the tribulation martyrs, and uh, that is clear in the text, and I was trying to shove too much into it last time. Um, so let's read it again. Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So we see that those who were martyrs during the time of the tribulation, uh, because it's speaking of these in the context of having had that choice between the mark on their forehead or the hand. Um, so when they made that choice not to receive that mark of the beast, um, that they had rather put their faith in salvation in Christ, um, that those will be resurrected um, and reign for a thousand years with Christ. And that would be at the end of the tribulation prior to the millennium. And it says that this is the end of the first resurrection. So this is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Uh, now you'll notice I've got only Revelation 25b and not part A. Uh, part A makes it a little confusing because they're, uh, he's giving us the big picture and then he's going back to the first resurrection. At least that's how I understand this based on the context. Um, because it says that, um, oh, I've got it later in here. Let me grab it. So Revelation 25, uh, so after four, it says they will come to life for a thousand years or reign with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Uh, I don't believe that this is the first resurrection refers to those uh, coming to life at the end of the uh, at the end of the thousand years. I believe it refers back to uh, the tribulation martyrs um, that those are the end of the first resurrection. Uh, the church is present during those thousand years. That was a question here. Where's the church during those thousand years? Uh, we have a different office. Uh, we actually, if we go back here to uh, verse four, it says, then I saw the, saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was given to them. Uh, these beasts or lots of different views on who the elders on the thrones are. Um, I do take a minority view the most. Oh, can y'all hear me? Okay, I saw that it froze a bit. Um, okay, now you can hear. So yeah, the, uh, the elders sitting on these thrones in chapter four, I believe are the same sitting on the thrones here. Uh, 
in chapter 20, verse 4, um, the first part, says, Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. I believe this is the church, um, and I'll, I'll be presenting my evidence for that uh, when we get to chapter 4, why I think the elders in the throne room of God in chapter 4 are the church. Um, so they will be uh, reigning with Christ for a thousand years, um, just as these uh, tribulation martyrs, but will be reigning as the bride of Christ and uh, a kingdom of priests. All right, so the first resurrection completed, and that brings us to the kingdom. What exactly uh, find it in scripture? Uh, we've, we've done a little bit on this uh, previously when we did some of the kingdom parables. We talked about what exactly is this kingdom. Uh, but here I'll attempt to give you a quick biblical theology. Uh, so what exactly was the purpose in creation? I believe the purpose in creation was for God to rule over the earth vicariously through um, a vassal king. Um, and that vassal king would be Jesus Christ eventually. Um, but initially he gave that rule to Adam. So that was his purpose in creation. And he states it in Genesis 1.26 as a purpose statement. Uh, so God says, speaking to himself uh, as a trinity, he says, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and every, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So this was God's purpose statement in creating man was for man to rule over the earth. Uh, this kingdom was promised to Israel and again, uh, you can look back at our foundation series that we've done. Uh, we saw that Adam lost this rule, and it was usurped by Satan in Genesis chapter 3, where Adam submitted himself to Satan rather than submitting to God, and uh, Satan became the de facto and de jure ruler of this world. Um, so the entire um, Bible narrative is essentially that struggle um, between the serpent and the seed, between um, God and Satan, but with the complete understanding uh, that God and Satan are not equals, um, that Satan will be crushed uh, and defeated, and he will be defeated quite easily. The only problem is uh, there are people in the middle between that battle, and I think that's why the serpent has not been crushed already, uh, because there are those who will be saved. So here in Exodus 19, 5 through 6, God has pulled out a special people for his purpose. And I think his purpose is to, uh, to create a, a kingdom or the uh, beginning of that kingdom. And that's supported uh, in that God gave to the Jewish people uh, the revelations or what's called in Romans, the oracles of God. Uh, also through them came the king, uh, Jesus Christ, and it's over this nation uh, that Christ will rule, uh, and by extent, rule over the entire world. And while that hasn't happened yet, we're anticipating that yet in the future. And it has to be over this world that that happens. Otherwise, Satan has been victorious in this world. Uh, so before this world passes away, Christ will rule as king over this kingdom of Israel. So here we see that uh, promise in Exodus 19, 5 through 6. This is just 
prior to the giving of the law to Israel. It says, now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. And it continues uh, to give the Ten Commandments after this. Um, and this is God speaking directly to the entire nation of Israel. This, this wasn't God speaking only to Moses. And uh, Moses reiterates that to us in the first seven chapters of Deuteronomy, that this was a vocal speaking. God actually used a voice to speak so that if you had a tape recorder, you could have recorded God's voice speaking to the nation of Israel. And he spoke to them as a peculiar people set aside for his purposes. And his purpose was to create a kingdom out of them. Um, in the foundation series, we're going to dig much deeper into this. Um, but for now, uh, let it be said that the kingdom purpose was centralized around Israel. And this promise was reiterated to David later on, and an infinite time period was put onto David's throne. It says, your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, David's seed, Jesus Christ, will be the forever king. Uh, but he, was also, he also promised to David that he would rule. Um, our understanding of the kingdom is that uh, Christ and David will share that rule, but Christ will be the king and uh, David will be subjugated to Christ himself. Uh, but uh, David would have to be resurrected in order to sit on that throne in the kingdom. Uh, so again, we need resurrection of the Old Testament saints prior to the millennium beginning in order for God's promises to David to take place in the kingdom. Uh, now this eternal throne will continue into the eternal state. Um, but it will have its foundation in the millennial kingdom in which God, through Christ, is victorious on this earth. So what is this eternal kingdom? In Isaiah 9, 6 through 7, uh, we have the promise of that uh, child being born. Uh, but most of this verse, which is a prophetic verse, most of this verse has not yet taken place. So we're familiar with this for child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. Now, I have watched some theologians do backflips trying to fit this into the church. Um, this is not speaking of the church, neither is the church the context. This comes from Isaiah speaking to the nation of Israel. And this is a promise to the nation of Israel of the throne of David. Um, so we, we understand that uh, for this kingdom to be present on this earth, we will also need the resurrection of the Old Testament saints to take place uh, prior to that time. Uh, but we see that this kingdom on earth for a thousand years is primarily focused with completing the promises given to Israel in their covenants. Because also, if God is unfaithful to those covenants, uh, he's going against his character. He must uh, bring about those promises. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, there is indication that there will be death in this kingdom. It says, no longer will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days. 
or an old man who does not live out his days. For the youth will die at the age of 100, and the, bone, or, and the one who does not reach the age of 100 will be thought accursed. They will build houses and inhabit them. They will also plant vineyards and eat their fruit. Uh, so this is one distinction between the kingdom and the eternal state. And this is another way that we know that this is not speaking of, uh, of the eternal state, because in the eternal state, there will be no death. Um, and this is where we get the concept of, uh, um, of those mortals entering into the kingdom after the tribulation, um, who have survived the tribulation, uh, and those who are mortal may procreate on this earth, and those children must, must make a decision for or against Christ. Those who reach the age of 100 um, without making a decision for Christ, uh, they'll be living under the curse. Uh, but those who have made a decision for Christ, that curse will be restrained for them, and they'll be living uh, out much longer uh, ages. And in fact, I, I don't believe that those who have made a decision for Christ will die during the kingdom. Uh, Adam and many of the others lived to 900 years. I think it would be perfectly reasonable uh, for them to be living past that thousand years. Don't the, those in the church not experience death again? Uh, those, uh, after the rapture, the church ceases to exist as mortals. They are all translated. Anyone coming into faith um, after that is not part of the church. They're part of the peoples of God. They're saved, but the Church is a unique entity, and for us in this day and age, in the context of the stewardship of the church, it's hard for us to break out of that concept of we think everyone who's ever been saved throughout all of um, the earth and through all of the future of the earth will be part of the church, uh, but the church is a unique group of people from Pentecost to the rapture. So during the thousand years, uh, we're there but not dying. Yes, in fact, we will never die um, after the rapture there will be no death of anyone in the in the church only those who die prior to his return in the rapture that was a question that came through in the chat um, so yes at this point the church has already been um, resurrected into their eternal bodies and anyone coming to faith is not entering into the church but they are entering into the peoples of god All right, but the curse will be removed in part in the kingdom. Um, the curse will be restrained or uh, taken away, uh, mostly. So we see they will not build and another inhabit. They will not plant and another eat. For as the lifetime of a tree, so will be the days of my people. And my chosen ones will wear out the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. For they are the offspring of these blessed by the Lord and their descendants with them. Uh, so this is not uh, descriptive of the earth in these days. Uh, we don't live as long as trees. Um, often we will work and die before we are able to wear out our houses or uh, all that we have. So it's essentially here uh, showing the ages of mankind being extended again, um, but so much so that all that is created during the kingdom uh, will be used for its purposes, used out. Uh, I, I, I don't believe this is speaking of long ages. I believe it's speaking of the removal of death for believers. 
Uh, and that being said, the unbelievers will be relatively few, uh, a minority group for sure. Uh, but interestingly here it says, or bear children for calamity. Um, I think this is a wink back. No, it's a wink isn't the best way to say it. This is referring back to uh, Genesis 3.17, 3.16, where it says that uh, women will bear children in sorrow. Um, sorrow being separated in its, um, in its context there from pain. That sorrow that a woman has in bearing children is that their children are essentially born to die. The death is the great equalizer. It doesn't escape. Um, and and uh, thinking, I know I always think back to the Lord of the Rings where the, the king has to bury his son and says no parent should ever have to bury their child. Um, this was especially prevalent for those back in the times of Genesis where ages were beginning to decrease, especially after the time of Noah, a lot of parents had to bury not only children, but grandchildren and great-grandchildren. Um, so this, this sadness of losing children, um, when they bear children, joy will be uh, complete because they're bearing them not for calamity. That being said, those born in mortal bodies um, still have that choice, but no longer is it their natural end. It's an end by choice. But here's a good uh, chart showing the distinctions between the millennium and the eternal state. Um, in the millennium, sin is restrained, but in the eternal state, it is completely removed. In the millennium, the curse is restrained, whereas in the eternal state, it's uh, removed. So with death, there is the existence of death in the millennium, not so in the eternal state. In the millennium, there are mortals and the resurrected, but in the eternal state, there is only the resurrected. There is uh, no more mortals uh, living there. In the millennium, the mortals' destinies are undecided. They must make a choice for Christ yet. And in the eternal state, all destinies are sealed. Millennium speaks of renovation. Eternal state speaks of recreation, meaning ex nihilo, from nothing, new creation completely. Millennium is temporary. We're given a time period, a time frame that it fits within, which is a thousand literal years, whereas the eternal state has no end. Millennium is transitional, and the eternal state is an eternal destiny. So I the question comes through here. Uh, sin is removed from the church and Old Testament saints, etc. No. Uh, so during the thousand years, uh, sin. It's speaking of generally on earth. So in the millennium, sin is restrained. Um, some can still sin. In fact, we have verses that indicate that. Uh, Egypt will have a national sin for which it'll be punished during the millennium. Uh, and uh, mortals will still have the sin nature and will have the opportunity to sin, but it'll be uh, restrained more so even than in the church today. Uh, again, using the terms church and Old Testament saints in the kingdom is valid. Um, but it's not necessarily speaking of them for their destinies are sealed by that time. Um, where it's talking about sin being restrained, that's that's speaking of the mortals who are in the king or in the millennium. So uh, sin will be removed from the church and the Old Testament saints because the resurrection body has no sin in it. Um, but sin will still be present on the earth during that time in mortal bodies. Uh, 
So what is the purpose then of this millennial kingdom? We understand that the purpose of creation is the kingdom, but what's the purpose of the kingdom, um, especially this millennial kingdom? So in 1 Corinthians 15, 24 to 27, Paul answers that question and says, of course, then comes the end where he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power, and that's the Antichrist's and Satan's power over the earth. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. Death will be present in the kingdom. Thus, he has to reign until he has abolished death. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is expected um, who put all things in subjection to him. Uh, now, I know I've had a good question from one of you a couple of weeks back. Why is Satan only restrained during the millennial kingdom? Why is he put in chains and released at the end? Well, Satan is intimately involved with this concept of death. It was through Adam that death entered the world and through the deception of the serpent um, that Adam uh, corrupted God's plan and death entered the world. Uh, so uh, again, Satan will be used as an instrument such as a magnet that will attract the rebels out of the mortals to join forces with uh, Satan at the end of this millennial kingdom. And at that point, uh, their punishment would be uh, justified not only by law, but in the sight of all those watching, that those who have made a choice against Christ um, would be defeated in battle, not only in, uh, not only in what could be otherwise described as a wine press. They're not just crushed, but rather they're, they're crushed uh, in the Lord's last victory over death. And the length uh, of this kingdom was not revealed until the book of Revelation, uh, where John is given the time period of this kingdom, or rather the length of this kingdom. And he uses this uh, indication of a thousand years, I think seven times or six times in Revelation 20. So he says, blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Um, so this um, indication of a thousand years is new in progressive revelation, being that it was one of the last truths revealed to the church. It comes under fire quite a bit, um, but it's pretty hard to argue with in the text. Um, you'd have to argue with it on a theological basis. And um, at that point, you'd have to depart from a literal interpretation and, and begin practicing allegory.